I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel. I'm joined virtually here in Los Angeles, as always, by my co-host, Joe, who's back in our hometown of London. And then, as we usually do, we have a special guest for the show as well. He's a former footballer who only recently hung up his boots after a career that saw him play for Manchester City, Sunderland, Queen's Park Rangers and Rail Salt Lake, as well as England at the youth level. Still involved in the beautiful game, he swapped those boots for a microphone as the host of the Kickback with Nedham podcast. You'll also find him regularly bringing his expert opinion to your screens as a pundit for the hugely popular ESPN FC show. And if podcasting and TV weren't enough, today's guest is also an editorial consultant for The Athletic. We welcome Nedham Anua to the United Mates Football Podcast. Nedham, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And how are you doing today, mate? Yeah, very good. That sounded good, all that stuff you said then. Is that, is that me? Come on, man. Yeah, I don't mind that. Thank you very I much. Mean, Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. We're very much looking forward to, to chatting about your career and what you're up to these days as well. I didn't even mention the fact that you're a father of, I think, three as well. So you've got, got a lot right, going yeah. on at the minute. Um, very yeah. impressive resume, trying to do you justice. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's good. Well, I'm glad you reached out because I enjoy doing doing things which I wouldn't normally do. Because I remember, like, even to be fair for my podcast, I'm trying to reach out to people and people just they just aren't responding. So I feel bad if I don't respond to everybody. So yeah, it's it's good to be on. I mean, we'll take it, mate. We're absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast, uh, both Joe and I. Something I think Joe might be a bit less thrilled about, though, is the news coming out of his beloved Tottenham Hotspur on this day of recording that Harry Kane. <laughs> has skipped training as speculation continues to link him with a move to one of Nedham's old clubs, Man City. So Joe, oh. where does that leave Spurs? How's the Nuno effect working out? And personally, I know that you're fresh from a stag do this weekend. So <laughs> how have you been doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right, Kyle. A bit hungover still, but um, had, a, had a great weekend um, at my friend Harry stag do. But speaking of the other Harry, Harry Kane, um, I obviously it's, it, this is really gutting this whole situation, but I'm I'm one of the Spurs fans at the moment that kind of just I just want I'm I'm happy for him to leave now. I think it's just best for everybody that he goes. We can rebuild because we can't really rebuild until he leaves. Um, but it's 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 got messy, and I, I think this is going right to the wire. So we we shall see. I'm sure Nedham probably wants to see Harry Kane um, at the Etihad, but. Um, mm. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah, 100%. But like, I know how this this goes because I'm technically a broadcaster now in quotation marks. Yeah. Anytime you say something which seems to go against the side's team, like they find you, they come and hunt you down. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, you know, we'll see what happens. So the ball's in Harry Kane's court and Tottenham's court. If he comes to City, listen, I will drive him around the City himself. You know what I mean? I'll make sure whatever needs to be done will be done. But if he wants to stay in North London, I'm sure it'll be just fine. 
Great. Well, there you go. Nice diplomatic answer there. And um, yes, indeed. <laughs> as Kai said, Ned, and we're you know we're really happy to have you on our podcast today. And what we always do when we start the podcast is we ask an icebreaker question to our mm-hmm. guests. So we've obviously got one for you. And we've sort of we've we've looked into your past, and we can see that you were um, a bit of a star track and field athlete mm. back in the day. Mm. So what our question actually is is basically. Think of something that you were good at in your childhood, but these days not so good at anymore. And track and field, we we can cut that one out. But we'll give you some time to think about it. We'll go first. So mull it over. I think my one is going to be history at school. I remember when I was 12 years old, I got 98% in a test once. Very proud of that. But if you ask me anything about the Battle of Hastings right now, (laughs) probably couldn't tell you much. But um, yeah, there's, there's my one. Kai, what about you? If it were a school subject, definitely math. I can't even remember how to do long division at this point. But I think something that I really used to quite rate myself at was dressing loudly back in the day. Probably when you and I went to school together, Joe, you can remember some of the gaudy outfits from places like Top Man. Just like as many bright colors and shapes on a, on a button-up shirt as I could find. And that, that was good for me. And I was also one of those kids at school that had their ears pierced too. So basically, I thought it was quite cool but um as an adult you know you look back at these things and some of the wardrobe choices and some of the haircuts and it sort of yeah just makes me want to cringe at this point so i guess fashion would be my answer prefer to keep it yeah yeah, very simple these days um i think odd socks is like me being a little rebellious and a little bit of flair a little bit of personality um (laughs) nedham are you are you a bit of a loud dresser ever no 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 i I used to be somebody who did follow fashion for a little bit probably between the ages of like 15 to 20 but looking back like it was insane what was going on so i went i went from fashion to just something very very simple to the point where if you looked at me in a picture now you wouldn't know which era i'm from you know it's just (laughs) keep it so so simple but instead of necessarily picking something which i'm not as good at now i'm gonna give you a take something that happened to me in my lifetime where i couldn't have been any more wrong about this i think it was when i was in year seven in school so it's when i was uh, 11 years old and my parents we used to do um ict just computer computing basically and i remember not re- being into it at all and i remember saying to my mom like you know i'm just not really bothered i just don't think it's going to catch on that's what i said that's what I said when I was 11 years old. This whole computers thing is not going to catch on, so I'm not going to bother with it. And she laughed at me and says, okay, you just wait and see. And now here we are speaking over Zoom from eight-hour time differences and things like that. Yeah, these things, they happen. It's just like what Bitcoin, for instance, the people who got in at the early stages are, yeah, they're laughing now. And I definitely yeah. remember having a roommate in college who was trying to explain it to me, and I just, you know, rolling my eyes at him. <laughs> now, yeah. I'm, now I'm the idiot. So these things, yeah, yeah. they do come full circle in a, in a way and, one day I'll, I'll make I'll make a speculative decision and I'll get it right and, and it'll, it'll prove fruitful. Do, but we'll see. Do you not think with that, like because you hear all these stories of people who've invested in something really early and end up being really successful? Like every time someone presents something to me, I'm thinking, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the one? Can I afford to not get involved in this? And 99% of the time, it's definitely not the one. But there's just this little bit of doubt, just because you think, well, maybe this is the next thing. But yeah, hmm, tough times. Well, I think that's actually kind of kind of brings me to our, our first question because in uh, we're going to stick with sort of childhood, but um, we're sort of just started talking about taking risks and sort of going out on a limb, maybe making an investment. And I think it's fair to say that, well, from the sounds of things, you took a bit of a risk when you were younger as well, but I'll get I'll catch up to that part. So sticking with, mm. yeah, the good old days, Ned, and we're going to talk about your childhood just a little bit more. And of course, you were born in Nigeria and mm-hmm. grew up in England with what I understand to be quite traditionally strict 
Nigerian parents as far as school coming first and things like that. So whilst academics were put on a pedestal at home, more than that, I'd say it sounds like your success in school was prioritized even at the expense of sports. I hear that you were basically forbidden from playing football or or doing athletics. So this is the risk that I'm going to talk about. How did you manage to excel in both areas, academics and sports, despite your parents' wishes? And did you always in the back of your mind have a a career as a professional footballer as, as your goal? Do you know, I didn't, I didn't actually, but just because the, the focus was always on school. I just happened to be pretty good at most of the sports, which I did. And then I was one of the best players in my youth team and so on. But it always felt like it, it was a luxury to be playing. And I love that you've done your research, like really, really done your research. I love this. <laughs> so every time I would go out and do something good on a Saturday for the academy or so on, or playing for school and all this stuff, like my parents loved it. You know, they loved seeing me do well, loved seeing me playing all that stuff. But it was never something which was a guarantee. You know, you had to work hard. There were no two ways about it. You couldn't decide to just slack off this week because you had a big game on Saturday. Listen, there's no big game on Saturday until you've done the work from Monday through Friday. That's just what it was. And as a consequence, as I say, I didn't think I had the same sort of viewpoint as other people who were in my academy team where the sole focus was to be in the academy and try and get into a first team. But I was there and the academy team felt like probably the equivalent of somebody playing for like a local team an amateur team a Sunday league team like this was this is your team this is who you play for you're just getting older with that same group of players until you get to 14 then people start getting cut then you get to 16 more people start getting cut and then you get in for 16 17 and you're in full time and before you know it, you're seeing the first team training you're getting calls to say come and train with the first team come and train with the reserves and stuff like this and then it's very 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 real and at that point there like when you come in full time that's when, you know, it's very hard to not think about trying to be a professional when literally everything you're doing is from that professional standard because it takes up all of your time, basically. Yeah, no, it certainly sounds like it does. But as um, as Kai mentioned, then, um, you, your parents have this kind of school-first attitude to you. But what, what qualities that your parents sort of had or instilled in you do you think actually were most important in helping you become a pro? Is there anything in particular in your upbringing that you think ultimately helped you become the the footballer that you ended up being um yeah i'd say there were some things you know they they would always try and keep me level you know nothing that was great was ever too great nothing that was bad was ever too bad you know they tried to keep you in a mindset whereby you keep going onto the next thing onto the next thing congratulations but onto the next thing because for me like throughout my career i'll be honest i've not really watched but i've not scored a ton of goals but i've not spent the, my entire career just looking back at them Like I scored some nice goals, but I don't look back at them. And with that same energy, I don't look back at, say, mistakes and things like that as well. So I like to keep it even. And once something's done, the way football works is straight on to the next thing, whether it's a training session, whether it's a game and stuff like that. And I think the way that they would treat me around, say, those times, I would have time to celebrate good things and so on. But you couldn't have a month to celebrate one thing. It was that. And then on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And as well as that for... For me, when I was in school and when I was in the academy, due to my parents uh, working the hours and stuff that they did, I had a level of independence where I had to figure out a way to get from school to the training ground or to get from the training ground back to my house and stuff like this. And this would involve some two, sometimes three buses at nighttime, straight after school, in your uniform, all this stuff. You've got your backpack, you've got your books. You've got to make sure you keep them, don't lose them. You've got to do this, got to do that. So I had a sense of responsibility from very early to the point where when I came in full time, like that wasn't really a task to be able to look after myself because I basically spent the last few years doing so anyway. Very rarely would it be a case of here, have like here's have a lift, 
have a lift. Uh, so someone you know, has, here's a ride to school. Here's a ride to this. Here's a ride to that. It's like, if you made a mistake, you had to deal with it. You had to figure it out. And as a consequence, I think I've, that's kind of what I was like in terms of playing. I'd be trying to figure things out through taking all the information in that I could and so on. And, you know, that's still something which I do today, even though I've stopped playing. Yeah, well, having that ability to take information in and keep a, a level head is clearly important. And it clearly, you know, worked out very well for you. But um, moving on now to um, some questions about Manchester City, obviously a club very close to your heart. So you obviously joined Man City at a very young age, but you were also more or less a fan from a very young age as well. And I, I believe you even went to the... Um, the 1999 playoff final division did, yeah. against Gillingham, obviously a very sort of famous match from um, Man City back in those times. But look, Kaito and I, I'm a Spurs fan, Kai's an Arsenal fan. In 1999, obviously Man City had that brilliant match, but <laughs> during the same time, on the red side of Manchester, they won the treble. <laughs> they were literally, you know, yeah. at that moment in time, the best team in the world probably so as um as a young man city fan growing up at that time who presume presumably knew united fans how was it being a city fan back then i imagine it's probably similar to our spurs fan when when arsenal were went invincible that season in 2000 oh, yeah. and whatever it was it. Yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. you, there's nothing there's nothing you can say you know, there's no pushback. There's no arguing point. You could say, maybe try and poke fun at the fact that they've lost the game so, from the City perspective. But then they'll say, but you're in Division 2. So, like, you're not, you're not even close to being able to get a derby game. You're hoping for a, for a cup tie against the team that's down the road from you. You know, and that's, that's tough because you can have the... To, I remember I was a ball boy that season and we had 30,000 people, but we were playing the likes of, like, Rochdale and Berries and things like that. And it's, it's insane to think about considering how big the club is and how big the club was then as well. So it was tough. Like when I signed, you know, I wasn't the biggest City fan when I signed when I was 10 years old. Because I remember even, I think maybe from the year before, but I think it was when United were playing Liverpool in the FA Cup final. I had a cassette tape of the United of United's song for the FA Cup that day and he used to play it and stuff like that. But I was just taken in football. But then I joined City and then before you know it, City was like, that's my team. Because I invested so much time into being a part of it, you know, wearing little things like wearing the same kit as like the first team that you see coming to the training ground where the first team are training. I remember being the guy who was standing outside looking for autographs after first team training sessions and stuff. And being a ball boy was incredible as well to get a feel of that atmosphere and to see the players walking around. So that was great. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily the thing. You didn't wear it like a badge of honor. Like some of the younger City fans these days to say they're a City fan, that's like the best thing you could possibly say. Like your life is stress-free. If they if they draw a game in a month, it's like oh, it's a crisis. Listen, I, I remember seeing them lose to like local rivals and stuff in Division Two, and like the stadium is just oh, it's, it's hostile to say the least. So, yeah, it was um, being a City fan hasn't always been great, and I think people born after me are probably quite glad that they didn't have to experience some of those days because they they weren't great. I remember the times. It sounds like your um, affiliation with the club clearly runs a lot deeper than mine. I remember back in the day, obviously, being like a, a rival of United. Arsenal and United were sort of going for, for championships together. And I uh, I had a City kit with Darren Huckerby on the back for no reason. Yeah, at all. Yeah, just yeah. just thought it was kind of a nice, <laughs> a nice novelty. And I didn't feel like I was stepping on my Arsenal supporting toes by doing that. But sticking yeah. with... Um, with City and actually sort of almost going back to something you mentioned earlier, talking about going through the academy with the same group of lads until they end up getting cut. But at the time that you were sort of part of the academy and then later when you were first in and around the first team, you're actually part of a really exciting crop 
of young British players who I think mm -hmm. if memory serves, probably the likes of Stuart Pearce and maybe Kevin Keegan were quite confident about when it came to giving you guys minutes. I'm talking about obviously the likes of yourself, but then there's also guys like Stephen Ireland, Ishmael Miller, Michael Johnson, Daniel Sturridge, Micah Richards, Chet Evans, Willow Flood, Kelvin Atuhu, and even Casper Schmeichel too. I know you're not all exactly mm -hmm. the same age, but there's probably a bunch of names I've even left out. But undeniably, you know, all of these guys can play. Do you think that the influx of riches that would come into the club ended up potentially derailing a few of these careers? Do you think that individually and collectively you guys could have achieved um, more had the club kept faith in you? Um, did any of you sort of suffer in your development because of the club's takeover? Um, not necessarily suffered in terms of development, but in the long term, I think there was a shift from the academy focus, which it once had to one being more of like a finished product or something very close to a finished product type of mentality. Because I remember myself, for me, I was one of those guys that came through and like we're forgetting to mention people like Bradley Wright Phillips, Sean Wright Phillips and so on. And there were a ton more. And that was the expectation that every year someone from the academy would come through and they'd be playing. They'd be playing tons of games, like talking Glenn Whelan's as well, Willow Floods, there were a ton of people. And that was good. But some of that was probably because there was no, they didn't have the funding to be able to do so. And we were a good Premier League team. At our best, we were probably top 10, like talking between 8th to 10th or something at our worst, we're probably 14, 15, 16, something like that during that time. And I think people, academy players were coming through and there were some really talented players like Daniel Sturridge was exceptional. You know, Mike Rich was obviously very good as well, but then the sort of takeover came and it's a change of expectation because from once you have money, like, you know, we, we, we try and claim that the league is a meritocracy, but ultimately, if you have more money, you'll probably end up sitting closer towards the top than you will do towards the bottom. So as soon as the money comes in, the expectation changes and the expectation is now we should be going for titles, we should be going for cups, should be going for this. And now in, instead of, say, having a pool of players from the academy who you're looking to bring through to be, develop over a series of years, like the timescales become just that little bit shorter and you need success this year, you need success now, you need success this month and you have the money to be able to do it. So there was a change in focus in terms of who they were bringing in. And now all of a sudden, as I say, some of the academy players and stuff, it's not that we, I don't think we, it was a case that we weren't good enough, but they wanted things which were more proven. And that was, I think that was from top all the way through to say, to be fair, a six, section of the fan base as well. Like we look at Phil Foden now and he's in the team, but he's not in the team purely because he came from the academy. He's in the team because he's one of the best players in England. And he just happens to have come from the academy. Uh, whereas in the past, like most academy players coming through were good and they can get better. But Phil Foden's like A1. He's special. He, for me, he's probably the best player to ever come out of the academy. But um, yeah, things things change. Things change. And it's just it's just how it goes. And it didn't get everyone straight away. But in time, I think most of the people who did come through from that era ended up sort of falling away. But that's just the nature of the game itself, unfortunately. I think once money does come in. But some people did thrive. There were academy players who stayed, like Mike, who ended up winning the league and so on. But yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough to continue to dip into that well of academy talent when the expectation is that you have to win something all the time. Otherwise, it's essentially a failure. You brought up a name that I actually, yeah, had wanted to, to ask you a bit more about, Phil Foden. There's obviously, as you kind of alluded to, been a bit of a gap between the likes of uh, your group of, of, of players coming through the academy and then someone like Phil Foden establishing himself in the first team. Just how important do you think it is for the club to have an academy product in the first team to show maybe local youth that it is possible to, you know, not two different clubs, the city that you came through the academy and the one today, but yeah. very different um, statures. 
Uh, and even just from the outside as an Arsenal fan, I find it a bit... I like Foden a bit more than I like some of the other players at City, not that I dislike any of them in yeah. particular, but just from a, a kind of um, PR perspective, do you think it, everything about it is positive and that City should maybe focus a bit more on their academy if possible? I think City have invested in their academy. I think the money that's going in there in terms of the coaching staff, the facilities, you know, salaries and things like that, I would argue that from a talent perspective, the players which are coming through there now are better than they were from back in my time. I'm not necessarily saying they're all going to have better careers than we did, but I think technically speaking within that environment, those are very good players because they're being recruited from all around the world. They're being paid for, they're being invested in time-wise coaching wise understanding and are all learning this system which i think is an elite system the pep guardiola way which is what they use throughout all of manchester city but tell me any club whose ideal wouldn't be to have a player from their city be one of the best players in their team because then like when i love it myself when i listen to him speak he sound he sounds like people who i know you know and he's one of the best players and that immediately draws you in because you can have a team full of talent from wherever, but it hits different when you see somebody who says things which sound just like you and only you understand because it's a, it's a colloquial word or something like that. So I think, it, I think it is huge. And for the academy itself, I think it legitimizes it because there's tons of players who've come in there and they're having great careers, but it's kind of passed through the doors, you know, they may have been sold and so on and so forth. But I think the academy ultimately would fail if you didn't see that there was actually a pathway to get in. And obviously Phil Foden is exceptional, but it's possible. It is possible. And he's the example of it. And he's the standard. He's the bar. So everybody in there who's behind him now, they're, they're all very confident people overall. So they're thinking to themselves, I can match that. And if I can match that, I can be there. I can be the next Phil Foden. And that is like, that's prime. And so, sorry, to, I meant to say something before about the academy. Timing is also very, very key. Because I don't think I could find many people that can tell me the academy strikers that came through at Man City while Sergio Aguero was there as a striker. But it doesn't mean that they're not good players. It just means that the person they're behind ended up scoring 260 goals for the football club. So what chance are you really going to get? Yeah, I mean, when Aguero's up front, not much chance at all. But obviously you were talking there, Nedim, about you know how great it is to have someone from your city um, playing in your team. You know, Harry Kane, he's one of our own is the song. There's a reason why we all love yeah. him because he's one of our own. Well, he is for the time being anyway. <laughs> but, um, look, we've spoken a bit about, you know, the that academy you were in at Man City with all those fantastic players and you obviously um, played for Man City for a few seasons. But we just want to talk um, a bit about that season you had at Sunderland. Um, in 2010 to 2011. And this was, aside, aside from maybe the Kevin Phillips, Noel Quinn Sunderland team, this was one of the best Sunderland seasons in, in their yep. Premier League history. So obviously you were there, Danny Welbeck was there, you had Jordan Henderson still there, Asamoah and it was a fantastic team. But I just want to speak about one moment in particular, actually. You probably know what I'm... Well, you might well there were two. There were two. There's one positive and one negative. Which okay. one do you want to talk about? The positive one. The positive okay, yeah, I can talk about that all day long. Yeah, let's roll. So, um, so a guy that sometimes comes on our podcast called Billy is a big Sunderland fan. And to this day, he never shuts up about that famous goal at Stamford Bridge where he <laughs> went into Lionel Messi, Ned. <laughs> well, you know, it's just, well, it's just, it's just, it's just yeah. You did it a good was, impression. But my um, what, what my question is, is, Given that you know that goal was scored over ten years ago now, but for Sunderland fans, it's um, it's it's an iconic goal to this day. What 
what does it feel like to have scored a goal that is considered iconic? Listen, I scored, I think, probably 16, 17 goals in my career. That's it. Should have scored a ton more. But in my living room behind me, I have a trophy that says Sunderland goal of the season. And I'm like, that's not what I was known for at all. But I have that moment. And it's a very, very special moment. It's one where, you know, it it wasn't expected. I didn't work on shooting. I didn't work on dribbling and stuff like that. But it just goes to show, like, overall, in any particular moment, we're all professionals, so anything is possible. You know, you look at, say, for example, the Christensen goal for Denmark against Russia in the Euros, where he's just gone and absolutely smashed one in. But I can tell you, before that, I don't remember him taking a shot. So we are capable of doing things. Just Just because from the outside, people think that somebody is good, bad, indifferent, whatever, at the end of the day, like you can do it. And in that moment, like there's no reason for me to be there. I was supposed to be playing right back and I got the ball in the middle of the field, 30 yards out. Like that's not a thing. And then <laughs> to decide to just go and do that again, I, I didn't do that. But when everything just falls together, it's, it's, it's special. And I do remember that year. I remember that year very, very fondly. And the only blip was we lost Newcastle 5-1. And people are still talking about that in the same way they're still talking about the goal. And that was at St. James's Park. And that was tough. That was very, very tough. But I went there. The aim was to finish in the top 10. We finished in the top 10. It was a great season. And we finished in the top 10 based on the last game of the season where we won away at West Ham. But it's crazy now to think that they're in League One and they can't get out of it. So yeah, that was a special year. That was a special moment for me. And you know, anyone who who knows me, you know, I, I don't really watch it back, but people to tell me about it and I'm more than happy to speak on it every single time as possible. Oh, I'm, I'm glad about that. And I can tell you, our friend Billy definitely watches it back, probably daily, I would imagine. <laughs> it, was, listen, it, was a, it was a great day. And the interesting thing before it was, I remember Steve Bruce said, as we were traveling down, he said, listen, this is a big game because it, it was a game that saw, it was like on the Sunday football show or whatever, at the prime time. It's like one thirty or 4 o'clock. And he says, listen, if you want to do anything, you've got to do it in London because that's where people notice it the most. So if you come out and you play well, you know, this is where the manager is, this is where people are watching, everyone's tuned in. And I scored that goal on my phone. I've never received so many messages in all my life because that was the only thing that was on at the time. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, obviously a great goal, as we said. But then the next season would be um, your final, well, you spent, until January, you were at Man City. Yeah. And that, yeah. Look, we'll, we'll go on to talk about a game in particular in a bit, but... Um, that would be the season Man City would win their first Premier League title. So obviously, look, I know you you left the club in January, mm-hmm. but you were, you were with the squad for the first half of the season. Yeah. Was there, in that first half of the season, was there anything you noticed in the squad, maybe a change in mentality, a change in tactics or belief? Or is there anything you saw from your time with them that ultimately you think is why that was the season that they won their first Premier League title? Well, I think the first thing to mention is the year before when I was on alone at Sunderland was when they won the FA Cup. So that's the first time that they've picked up a trophy. And now there's a different different level of expectation at the club. You know, where do you go after winning a trophy? The next season, the plan is to win another one because there was more investment again that summer. I think that was when, I think Tevez maybe came for that. I think, not Tevez, um, Aguero maybe came that season. I think, he, yeah, so I think he came that following year. So you're seeing that like, they're bringing in players like that when you've already got a Tevez, when you've got a Zeko, you've got Balotelli's and all this stuff. And you look, and I looked around and it wasn't like I was training with the squad for the duration of the time, but you looked at that team and it was a team full of people who don't have to acknowledge the history of what Man City were. And it's now a team of people who are trying to create a future for the club. Whereas, you know, 
with all due respect for people like myself and so on, for example, when you go to Old Trafford, you, you, you can't help but remember all the times where you've left that stadium disappointed. But for City that year, you're now looking at a bunch of people who go to Old Trafford just expecting three points. And that sort of switch in mentality and the change in expectation. And with Mancini, for, for his downs and stuff, he was, all, he was a manager who was very confident. And he tried to pass that over onto his players. He expected to win every game. There was no doubt. There was no worry about history or anything like that. And they were relentless. And that bunch of players, like, I don't think they all loved the manager, but they all loved each other. And they all worked very, very hard to try and win the league title that year. And they knew they had a great chance because they had a good start. And they found a level of consistency. And all across the field, there were people who could win the game for them. And as a consequence, like, as I say, it just, it felt different. Because once they got rolling, like, they were, they were special. Mancini's, of course, still doing it these days to the uh, disappointment of, of England, unfortunately. <laughs> but sticking with that season, of course, you would in January move to Queen's Park Rangers and it was mission to avoid mm. the drop, essentially something that you did manage to do on that that faithful day. But of course, you know, on that on that game, on that Aguero moment, you're a City fan deep down. You came through the academy, you played for the club. You're playing in the most famous game in their history and even arguably the most infamous game in mm -hmm. Premier League history at this point. But of course, for the other side, as I mentioned, for QPR and you guys were facing potential relegation right down on that last day. You didn't know which way it was going to go. So as the Aguero goal goes in, was there any part of you at that time that sort of understood how momentous this occasion was or were you just sort of solely concerned that you might have been getting I was relegated? solely concerned about being relegated there was not one single bit of me in that moment that even acknowledged the fact that I was a Man City fan especially because at that particular moment that was the least I was a fan because I didn't get on with the manager so the manager was the one who kicked me away Man, and Man City was my club I'd been there from when I was 10 and then I got told to move and I had to move I had no options I wasn't being played in the first half of the season and he told me that I had to go he had no interest in me as a player person just even merely existing it felt like so I wasn't all in with the club at that point because I knew he was in charge of it there were some great people in the team but I what I really didn't like him really didn't like him so when that went in it was actually for a split second my worst nightmare because he'd had left and now I'm being relegated by my old boss in my old stadium in my city in the last minute of the game and I was absolutely devastated, so much so. Like, this is how specific it was in terms of how disappointed I was. So I didn't, I told you I don't really watch games back. I didn't know who scored that goal for City for three, four days because I didn't put the TV. I was, I was there. I would literally think I was there. I didn't have a clue who scored the goal. I just thought we're going down. And it was only two, three days later when I'm starting to see the replays and I saw who scored. I was like, oh, I didn't know, didn't know that. That's who it was. I think the most infamous goal in Premier League history. I was 10 yards away from it. I didn't know who it was for days. But yeah, that's, 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 that's where I was anyway. It is crazy. But I suppose after the fact, once your survival was confirmed with QPR, obviously you would have celebrated that with your teammates yeah. and with the fans. But did you at any point allow yourself, you know, differences with Mancini aside to celebrate for City and the sort of achievement that the club had, had you know, for the first time in their history, winning a Premier League? Um, by the way, I apologize if my light's flickering. It does this at nighttime. This is like the sign for me to go to bed. But anyway, it, um, <laughs> so I, after, as soon as the goal was scored, I went to find Joe Hart. Sorry, as soon as the game was over, I went to find Joe Hart to congratulate him because he's a good friend of mine. I've known him for a very long time at that point. I was there when he first came to City. You know, I tried to 
help him get used to the city and all that stuff. Celebrated with, uh, sorry, I congratulated him. But, after, but, you know, it was all about my team, which was QPR. And we just secured another season in the Premier League. It was tough. Like when you go to a new club, it's tough. But when you go to a new club that's losing most of the time, like not winning, like the feeling, I've gone from being at City where essentially winning all the time to being somewhere where like you're hoping to find a win somewhere from anywhere. And it's not going to be through controlling games and performance. It's just through just grit. There were times when uh, in that first three, four, five months, there were like people fighting who I didn't know, didn't know anything about the training ground. I was in a new city, didn't get this, didn't get, didn't get anything. It was like, couldn't have been any more like foreign to me and it was stressful. So the relief of staying up was huge because it's a chance to settle in because I had something in my contract as well, where if we went down, I would be able to leave on a free as well. But I was here thinking I'm going to stay for a longer period of time. So there's a lot of relief. I can renew the sort of rent on my house and stuff like this down south. Like, oh gosh, I can settle. We've got time. It was huge. And I went into the dressing room. We were all relieved. We ended up talking deep, having a debrief, and then popped open the beers. And then someone came over from the city and said, you should go over to the city side if you want. They invited me over. So I went over and in there they were having champagne. So I congratulate the people that I knew. And then that is literally, if you want to get a feel for the two sort of emotions, one side is beer, one side is champagne. But ultimately both both sides are a sign of relief because you've you've done it, whatever your goal was in that moment. Yeah, you certainly both achieved your goals. And yeah, what a what an occasion to have been a part of, albeit potentially would have not been such a, a pleasant one had um had the hoops gone down. But um speaking of QPR. Obviously, you stayed up that year, but then the next few seasons for QPR, you'd become a bit of a sort of yo-yo club in the way that I suppose a West Brom or a Norwich are at the moment. Mm-hmm. What What is it like being part of a team that from season to season is is changing leagues? Is it um, quite disorientating? Is it is it frustrating? Is it exciting? How yeah, how how describe being in a team in that, in that kind of situation? Um, I think it's. It totally depends because I think every team has a different reason for the ups and the downs and so on. But that first season when we stayed up with QPR, they'd win a bit of investment into the playing staff, but the heavier investment, heavier investment came the next year. That's when we were bringing in people like Julio Cesar and so on. And with that, like there were tons of players who were really good players. But I think one thing which we got wrong at QPR at that time was the identity of the club wasn't necessarily one where those players coming in could truly understand because of the core of the club was were people like Jamie Mackey, Clint Hill, Sean Darius and so on, who were good players. And they had been there through the championship years when they were trying to find success and so on. But put that alongside some of these other players who come from teams who were in the Champions League and so on. And like when everything's going well, everything's easy. One thing, when you're not winning games, you've got serious, significantly different opinions on how to get better, how to change things. And at that point there, people who have coming from Champions League situations, they're not expecting to be in a relegation dogfight where you've not won for 10 games and stuff like this. So there was almost like a clash of personalities to a certain extent with the people who would come out on top being the ones who'd been there the longest. But then you also needed the talent of the people who were fresh there if you wanted to have a chance of, in terms of staying up. So there wasn't really a sort of, there wasn't any real unity. And I think ultimately the club in that instance was like an identity. So in that first, that next season, like we struggled really struggled quite badly and it, it was tough because the talent was there but like I say it wasn't united front in terms of trying to deal with adversity and so on so we went down a ton of people left and I think Harry Rennett was the manager then and he said he only wanted a certain type of player there to help us get up because the championship's a whole different whole different battle or whatever 
So you got a core group of players there who were a bit older, loads of Premier League players and so on. And we scraped up purely through personality. Like we were good, personality and character. We were good for the first maybe quarter of the season, but then for the rest of it, like felt like we were just winning games just because we had special talents. And then by the end of like Ravel Morrison's and people like that playing for us in the championship. And it was like, yeah. So we got up. And then that was the first time I felt like I understand what it is to get back into the Premier League because before that I'd always been in the Premier League. But the fight to get back in there, that's a, t- that's a long season. A 46-game cham- championship season to try and get promoted is tough. It's very, very tough. It's relentless. And so then we're in the Premiership that next season. And then Harry's, Harry Redknapp was in charge and he tried to change the formation and stuff. And again, there wasn't really United front over certain things and certain people were causing certain issues, which meant that we weren't really, as I say, pulling together as a team. And that was disappointing. And then come towards the end of the season, manager loses his job. And then, yeah, we were all over the place, really. And that was tough. But the next season, again, we didn't get promoted automatically this time because we didn't have the same level of talent that we had two seasons prior. We didn't have the same sort of investment. And we ended up finishing probably eighth or ninth or whatever in the championship. And it's tough to be going up and down, up and down. And for us, the identity and the groups of people that were there completely changed because the first time... Come that first full season in the Premier League, you've got Julius Cesar's, Esteban Graneros, people like this, Jose Bossingwas, and so on. Then the next time we go, we've got a different crop of players without that same sort of profile. And then after that season going down in the Championship, we've got a bunch of young players where the salaries are getting lower and lower and lower, and they're getting them from different places. So the club, again, was in a completely different spot. And then you're like, well, you know, I ended up being the constant. I stayed there myself and one or two others. We were there for the duration of it. But in that point there, the player turnover was huge. And when the player turnover is huge anywhere, you can kind of get, kind of get a feel that like you're not really going to find a, any level of consistency because it just seems like one in, one out, one in, one out for the whole time. And at that point, who are you as a team and, or, or as a football club? You mentioned major investment at Queen's Park Rangers and you named a few names, but I think someone you might not have mentioned was someone you would have probably, at the very least in training, played alongside a, a fair amount. And that's Rio Ferdinand, who yeah. I think looking back, his time at QPR might not have gone the way that anybody really wanted it to necessarily. And it maybe was a sign that, well, inevitably that was when he decided, yeah, to, to end his end his playing career. But despite performances, you know, in the Premier League, put that to one side, the guy's a living legend, essentially, especially as far as, you know, the centre-back, the fraternity of sort of centre-backs goes. Putting the Manchester United thing again to one side, what was it like to play alongside someone who I can only assume you might have looked up to throughout your career or at the very least looked across the city at and thought this guy's he's not <laughs> the, bad well listen there are two sides to it like as a centre-back the way that he played and to be talked about as a Rolls Royce and so on and see somebody who's not trying to make tackles all the time reads the game exceptionally well wants the ball play and all that stuff you know you want to be like that some people you know they want to be the big tackles and all that stuff but for me as I got older I realized I just I'd rather have more of an impact and not have to slide because if you're having to slide, it's because you're desperate. Whereas Rio was never desperate. And there was this thing as well where we always, you have our distance measured for every game. And he was the sort of prototype which I wanted to follow because he would run as little as possible but have the biggest impact possible. Whereas I'd have to see loads of people who try and run as much as possible. But I say, well, you're running a lot because you're not in the right spot. So I'd say I probably learned a lot from him with that to see him around I saw his work ethic and so on and he wasn't at his best but every so often he'd be showing glimpses of exactly who he was because this is a guy who you know from young was an incredible player 
and then did it all with Manchester United. You know, he was involved with one of the best centre-back pairings in Premier League history with him and Vidish and so on. So it's good to see him. And don't get me wrong, it's, it wasn't prime time Rio Ferdinand, but he was more than capable of playing in our team. But the only downside is you're having to defend probably three, four times as much as you probably would do at Man United and you're a lot more exposed and things like that. So it didn't necessarily work out. And obviously that year was the year, was the year I think his wife passed away as well. So it was a tough, it was a tough year for him, tough year at the club as well, it was going down. And it was a it was a shame. But just to be able to just speak to him about football and just be on the field with him, you know, communicating with him, talking with him, playing the game together with him, like I can say not many people have had the chance to play centre-back in Rio Ferdinand, but yeah, I did that for a year. Yeah, you certainly did. And yeah, what, what, what a player to have played alongside. But um, you obviously then, we talked about the yo-yo period. QPR would then sort of consolidate their position in the championship and you'd remain there, as you said, for a few years. Um, but in 2018, you would make the move over to the United States for Real Salt Lake. Um, and I guess the thing that's interesting about that move is when you think of um, you know, an English player moving over to the MLS, you normally think of someone going to, you know, somewhere in California, one of the New York teams or mm-hmm. something like that. So um, I guess my question really is... Um, why? Well, <laughs> what, 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 what was it like living in Utah? What, what was that experience like? Because that is just quite interesting to know what the, yeah. Yeah, how that was. Okay, so when I was um, leaving QPR, the plan was initially to stay in England. And then when I saw the interest and stuff that was involved, I thought, well, this opens up the whole sort of like world market as such. And then I saw Michael Mancian, I think it was, went to the MLS that summer and I think Wayne Rooney did as well. And like I'm friends with Michael Mancian and he said he really enjoyed it. So I thought, well, maybe this is going to be an option. But then upon opening that MLS book, you start to realize how it's a whole different setup to say what it is in England from rules about, say, boots you can wear to transfer windows to, like, DP slots to international slots. Like, I'm thinking, whoa, like at 32 or whatever, or 31, I'm having to really rethink what football is. And then at that point, I had three kids. And so wherever I was going to go, it wouldn't be a short-term thing, especially if it's to go to the other side of the side of the world. And there were four, maybe five teams who had international slots available that summer. But they were very precious about them because in the US, they do like to invest in like spicy South American strikers and stuff like that, the big showpiece things. But there were, I think there was Houston, there was Orlando, there was potentially LAFC, there was RSL, and I think maybe one more. Houston said they wanted to wait to see what happens in January because they're obviously on the like calendar year season. Um, Orlando were bottom of the East conceding four or five goals a game. And my agent spoke to them and said, would you be interested in defending? He says, no, we're happy with how our defending's going. You know, we're fine until next year. I was like, okay, cool. No worries. So this is, the, this, is, uh, this is July, I think, 2018. And then RSL come in just out of the blue and said, I think we might be, uh, we're interested. We're interested because they got a few references and stuff that said they're interested. Said they're going to send a, a contract offer over. And then they offered me a deal, which was, Till the you play the, the first half of that season, then all the next year. And if you play enough games, you get the year after. So here was potential for a two and a half year deal, which is something which I could take my eldest daughter out of school for and take my whole family with me to be able to take part in. And at that point, I thought, right, best get on Google. Google Utah. Google the stuff that's going there. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, they had the Winter Olympics. That's all I knew. Literally all I knew. So the manager called and said he wanted to come, wanted me to come over, see the place for a few days because they'd, they'd had a few sort of like bus signings in the past. 
Um, so I went over. First thing you see, the mountains, beautiful. Went to the stadium, really nice. Went to the training ground, top. I was like, this is this is all right. It's like 30, 35 degrees as well. Centigrade. I'm like, this is this is this is prime. Thought, this is this is terrific. And then the uh, director of football was like driving me around and stuff like that. And I was looking at potential places to live. And I'm texting my wife saying, this is it, you know, this is, this is cool. This is so, so cool. But I remember when I was at the stadium, I got a call from someone at LAFC saying they were going to put an offer in. But their offer was, you finish this season, so you play the last six, seven games. And then if they like you, they said that they'll give you the option for the next year. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to bring my family over? to somewhere like LA to play seven games. It doesn't matter whether I play well, play badly. They still hold all the cards and say, they will decide if they want to keep me for the next season. I was like, no, this isn't going to fly. So the RSL offer just became that, just became a lot even better in my mind. And then from that point, there were so many people saying, oh, don't go to Utah, don't go to Utah, don't go to Utah. It's this, this, it's that, it's whatever. But as a man with three kids who doesn't go out all the time and wants to like see the world and see nature or whatever, I was living at the base of a mountain range, looking down into a valley, had the best weather I've ever experienced in my life, met some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life and had a stadium where obviously it's different in terms of like MLS football and so on. But I could bring three of my kids to the game and not be worried about hostility and stuff like that. You know, I'd been through that stage where I was at Loftus Road and it's like incredibly partisan, like it's nuts there. It can be incredible when you when everything's going well. But here was a place, whether it was going well, going badly, people were very nice. They were always happy to see it. People could be around. And then I traveled up and down the state, see national parks, lakes, walking through mountain ranges. My daughter's traveling 10 minutes from school to go skiing and all this stuff. And for us, it was one of the best experiences we've ever had. And like, as I say, I absolutely love that two and a half years. I think 2020 was like a nuts year for everyone for lots of different reasons. And then being there was a bit different, but the opening year and a half, as good as I could have ever wished for at a place which I had no idea about, which everybody was telling me I shouldn't go to. So it just goes to show, you know, sometimes see things for yourself. And I loved it. The team was good. Some really good players there. Made the playoffs two out of the three years. And I think I made a difference. So like, what more could I have asked for? I guess we began almost by talking about um, making smart decisions or making unpopular decisions, even when I was joking about Bitcoin and stuff, but it worked yeah. out for you this time. And unsurprisingly, from the sound of that LA officer, offer, rather, it's like classic Hollywood, almost like they're asking you to come and do an audition. So not surprised yeah. by the mentality coming out of, uh, of California in that sense, necessarily. <laughs> but I'll, um, you know, you're not all I'll, that bad to say as well. I forgot to say as well, complete, like, this is, talk about vindication. So I didn't go to LA that, uh, that summer. And then who do we have in the knockout round of the playoffs? It was the LA. It was LA in the first round. And they, I think they just finished first or second in the division. We were like sixth or seventh. And then we beat them in LA and we went on to the next round. So I was like, ah, there you go. Decision it's made. A, Great goal. A win-win. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But you, again, referenced 2020 being a bit of a, of a crazy year and that's pretty undeniable. Um, otherwise, I might be being a bit presumptuous, but... What role, if any, did the pandemic play in your retirement? From what I can tell, you didn't take part in the MLS's back nope. tournament, I think, which was over in Orlando. That's right, um, yeah. Did you have time to sort of be amongst your family and sort of uh, consider your next steps? Is that something nah. that played into you hanging up your boots? No, no. From when, I, from when I signed that contract with RSL, the plan was to play for that duration. And I said, if I didn't play the, the amount of games required to get, an, to get that last year in, then I probably didn't want to be there anyway. 
So it turned out I played all, most of the games that second season to get the next deal. The coach was happy with me. The club was more than happy with me and I was happy to be there. But the plan was once that contract was done, that would be my last contract and I was happy to call it a day. And then we were going to get ready to go back home. So the pandemic didn't have any sort of play in terms of when I was going to retire. It had a play in terms of how the season finished because it finished without fans overall and stuff like that. But like I say, the plan was always the plan. And for some people, it was frustrating because I was leaving in good health and playing well. But I was like, well, you know, sometimes when you look at it, this game itself, it can it can really chew you up and spit you out. And it had done for me in the past. But to be able to walk out on my own terms is is like a feeling which I'm immensely proud of and one which I really enjoy to this day because lots of people after I retired were reaching out to me saying like, you know, they had to stop because of this. They had to stop because of that. And the fact that I was able to stop to be at a place whereby I was really appreciated and to be able to walk away and know that I can go back there whenever I want and to be received in open arms for what I did in that time. Like it was fantastic. But to talk about that tournament in the summer, like one of my issues with the MLS as such is that like, I feel like the league has all the leverage over the players because it's not like in England and so on where, you know, you, you contracted to your club, like you contracted to the league. So essentially if the league wants to host a tournament on Mars, chances are people will have to go into training to go and travel to Mars. That's just what it is. And that tournament initially was supposed to be 70-something days. And then it went down and it ended up being, I think, like four weeks or something. And I think for the people who live in America and so on, to be away from your family for that time was fine. But for me, it wasn't. And I wasn't prepared to leave my family, my wife and three young children to be by themselves over in Utah without family being able to fly over from England and so on, which was a luxury that I think a lot of other people had, but given the fact that they're from America. So I said, well, I'm going to make the call to not go to this tournament. And I was supported by my team, but I wasn't supported by the league. And I did face a fine, but it's one of those things which I just felt was right. Like, I'm not going to leave them for that time. And it's good that, you know, the MLS back tournament came on, you know, people were able to work and people could earn money and so on and so forth. But just from a principled standpoint, I couldn't do it to my family. So I decided to not do it. But then, yeah, the season continued after that. And we didn't make the playoffs that year. But again, like I say, it was just the plan was to finish anyway. And I'm not somebody who say, well, I'm going to play one more year so I can get some more fans in the stadium. Because to be honest, before that, I had 15 years of fans in stadiums anyway. So I think I'll get by without the last six months of having any. It's 15 more seasons than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, you talk about going out while you're on top. It's, it's smart. You know, there are players who maybe overstay their welcome in the sport, not to point fingers at anyone. We all have reasons for doing things, but it can end, end of the day sometimes tarnish a bit of a legacy, which certainly is nothing that you no, had, not to, all, had no. to suffer. But moving on to your post playing career and obviously we can't not talk about your own your own podcast but beyond that you know there's the punditry and the athletic as well so how did that all come about were these opportunities that were extended to you as a bit of a surprise or in a full circle sort of way is this some of that sort of strict and practical upbringing of yours kicking in did you always have alternative plans for a career outside of no. playing or coaching even once no, you retired not really not at all um I'd been planning for retirement from the time I was in my mid-20s, but not in terms of what I'd be doing for work, just financially getting ready for that point. Because when I arrived at QPR, I was surrounded by people who were 33, 34, 35. So the conversations you hear are ones which you wouldn't hear in a normal dressing room these days, which are about fortnight. So I was getting ready for, as I say, for the end in terms of financial planning and so on, listening to what they were saying, listening to the concerns that they had at this point and regrets that they had and so on. So I was getting ready for that. 
But then one thing which was consistent throughout my career was I was always, I always tend to be quite good with the media teams at clubs that I was at and say media people, whether it's for the newspapers or TV or whatever. So it meant that I think it was 20, so 2017, maybe possibly. Yeah, I think 2017, I was doing some stuff for the BBC every so often and I was enjoying doing it. And then the move came to, to Utah came about, but I kept in contact with the guy from the BBC and I try and do some shows from over there, even though it was on a different time zone, all that type of stuff. And again, I enjoyed it. And it meant that I could keep my relationship going for when I did come back to England and when I, when I was retired. And as for the podcast, I believe it or not, I've just hit two years. It's been two years since that started. And it was something which I never wanted to see. Yeah, thank you. Something which I never want, would have started myself, but my producer, Ryan Hale, he, um, I was on someone else's show, which he was producing. It was Rachel Corsi and Erica Timmerich. Rachel Corsi was Scotland women's national team captain. And he really enjoyed it. And when the show was done, he said, would you be interested in doing your own? And I thought, mm, I don't think so. But then he kept talking to me, talking to me. I said, all right, sure, we'll do it. And the best thing about it for me, like this is why I'm very fortunate, he, all I needed to do was arrive in this, create a time where we can be in the studio record, create all the content myself, speak to whoever I wanted. Didn't even have to be related to the club because he was working for the club at the time. And then he'll do the edits and get it out. Like it's the dream come true for a content creator. Somebody else doing all the work, which you don't want to do from the jump. Whilst also being able to like, as I say, I could speak to whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And I got into it and we were rolling. We were going with it. He was teaching me stuff. I was understanding stuff. I was getting better, learning about the audience, learning about what clicks, what doesn't click. Like, and as well, it was one of those podcasts as well, because it doesn't, it's not aligned with the company. It's not aligned with the team. So it doesn't get thousands upon thousands upon thousands of listeners, but there's a very strong core following who've been growing from the very, very start. And I really enjoyed that and seeing the statistics, seeing the numbers, seeing the people, seeing the interactions and so on ended up being brilliant. And I think that's helped me with my media stuff now because I'm used to speaking to guests and speaking for people to listen. So when I do my BBC stuff or I do my ESPN stuff, which I really, really enjoy, to be honest, which I started in February, February, or I'm saying speaking with the Athletic and so on, I think I've got an idea of like, more than just being a footballer talking about the game that's to come or the game that's just been like bigger picture topics and so on and nuance and talking about certain things and so on it's it's been it's been good and i think i'm very lucky because in my position now i do a few things i have my podcast i do work for espn fc for um that appears on tv and it's like digital i do the consultancy for the athletic which is really good because I like the way that they think about things. And they're coming to me asking about, say, transfers or what it's like being in a dressing room, asking me what, what my experiences were like, doing stuff for the BBC where I'm on a show with Steve Crossman, which will be every week um, in this season. And again, that's stuff where you're talking about stories and you're not seeking controversy or anything. And then if I do stuff for a club, I do stuff for Man City, for their City TV things. So all the places that I'm at, I can be myself and I can have an opinion but I can explain it because there's time to do so. And you can have them back and forth with someone. You can have debate. And that's that's who I am as a person. So I'm very, very lucky. But some of it's been in the planning. Like even when I was in RSL, speaking with um, 
woman called Karen who's in charge of like relationships with ex-players from Man City in terms of doing stuff for them. So I was like planning that, planning that, trying to sneak that in, thinking, oh, I'll tell you what, it'd be great if I could just sneak back into that building once I'm retired. It would be great, yeah. And now I'm in there, they're giving me shirts and sending me chocolate and stuff like that. I'm like, that's a, that's a win. That's a win. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's good. I'm enjoying it. It's not too much. Good people around. You can make good content. And as I say, you can just enjoy yourself. I had the best job in playing football, but the one that I've got right now in talking about it isn't too bad either, to be honest. Well, it's fantastic. You're still enjoying it. And I know Kaitel and I are big fans of Kickback with Nedham. So long, long may that Thank you. Thank you. Continue. But um, yeah, that does bring us to the end of um, today's podcast. So I want to say a big thanks to my co-host Kaitel and an even bigger thanks to our fantastic guest today, Nedham. Nedham, it's been great chatting to you. We hope you've enjoyed being on. And also, how can listeners of this podcast best follow you and all the stuff that you're currently doing? Um, best way is through Instagram and Twitter. The handle is kickback underscore Nadem. There'll be links in there to podcasts. You'll see stuff, uh, shows which I'm doing and so on. But um, yeah, that, that's my spot. I'm not the most active on social media, but you know, if you need to find out what I'm doing, you can definitely find it there. And I need to give you guys a big shout out as well. In terms of podcasts, which I've done, this has been one of the best ones because you guys know what you're talking about and you've really done all your research. This is tip top, tip top. Love this. Much appreciated, Ned. And we've absolutely loved having you on. And I think we're looking forward to seeing when the when the Harry Kane deal does get over the line, you giving your well. opinion on the SPN FC. I know, I know you've said that, it might come with a bit of backlash from the, the Spurs contingent, but as an Arsenal fan, I could not care. Less Listen, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Listen, if if they ESPN want me to do stuff after Kane signed the deal, just I'll be busy. I'll be driving around somewhere trying to find him <laughs> a house. Do not worry about that. <laughs> well, anyway, thanks again, Nedham. As far as our listeners and viewers, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a follow, give us a like, give us a subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast. Same for our YouTube channel as well. Across social media, we're at United Mates FP for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And then check out our website if you're not on social media. I guess good for you, but fear not. You can still follow everything that we're up to over on that website. And that's www.unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.